Shalom, mishpacha. Shalom, family. Mishpacha is a Hebrew word. It means family. And we're the mishpacha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. We're the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, mishpacha, to blow the grandest shofar or the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to understand God's marvelous gift of grace. But you know what? There is a hyper-grace movement that is totally distorting God's wonderful gift of grace. So I, I said, who do I know that would be the best person to analyze what is true biblical grace and what is wrong with the hyper-grace movement? And, of course, it was called a no-brainer. It's my friend, um, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown, for those of you that aren't familiar with him, uh, he has a Ph.D. in uh, Near Eastern Languages uh, from New York University. He uh, speaks, reads, or writes a dozen languages. Uh, he has been in the scriptures uh, for decades in the original languages. Uh, and uh, uh, Mike, I, I'm sure you had a burden before we even contacted you about this hyper-grace message that's going around. When did you first uh, were concerned about this? Well, it's because I love the message of grace so much, and I'm so jealous for God's true, true grace. I started to get burdened when I, I saw just some distortions, some mixture that was coming with the grace message. But in particular, the last year, everywhere I turn, I'm running into this. Everywhere I turn, I'll quote a scripture about holiness and purity, and someone will come back to me. That's legalism. Why are you throwing this under me? I'm under grace. And I thought, that's a strange response. I, I would talk about, let's press in, let's go after the Lord, let's seek him. And they'd throw something back at me. That's works. I'm under grace. And then they'd start using all the same terms. I'm not into behavior modification. I'm not into sin management. I thought, where are these coming from? So the more I began to look at it, the more I saw that there were a number of books, a number of teachers, a number of ministries that all felt they were part of a grace revolution or a a grace reformation. Some of them say that there have been things hidden from the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now we have recovered it, and we are putting this out. And, and I became increasingly alarmed when I saw the extreme claims that were being made. I became increasingly alarmed when I saw people being damaged and then said it's like a flood. Pastors, leaders, believers, literally from all over America and different countries saying, Mike, you've got to speak about this. You've got to write about this. This is splitting our churches. This is confusing our people. Families are being torn apart. And, and I saw some being touched by a, a great revelation of grace, and I'm so jealous for it because we can never for a split second downplay, despise, denigrate God's grace. We live by grace 24-7, but I saw it being mixed with dangerous error. Uh, let me tell you what concerns me the most at this point is uh, the Bible says, without holiness, we will not even see God. And what the effect it's having, even the ones that are not really in heresy, which uh, most of them have a little bit of this uh, heresy, uh, is when people start watching the TV shows, reading the books, what happens is their barometer 
for holiness goes down and they start compromising. And uh, and I, I don't want to share testimonies of men and women of God that have uh, have done things like leaving their their wife and marrying their secretary. And but here's the thing: that's happened even before the hyper grace message. Mm-hmm. But it's justifying it. That's what's bothering me. Right. And, and here's the thing. Every hyper-grace teacher that I've read, listened to, many I've dialogued with, I've reached out to and say, hey, I'm writing about this. I'm quoting you. Do I understand you correctly? Are you willing to reconsider your position? And we've gone back and forth. And they say, no, this is where I stand. But here's the deal, though. Everyone that I speak to, they say the same thing. No, no, no. Grace is not a license for sin. When you understand grace rightly, it helps you to overcome sin. I said, but the problem is when you teach that God has already forgiven all of our future sins before we ever commit them, when you teach that we never have to confess our sins to God, when you teach that the Holy Spirit never convicts us of sin anymore, when you tell us that anything where you have to exert some kind of effort to please God or obey God, that, that, that that's all wrong, that that's the flesh, that that's not grace, of course you're setting people up for destruction. Of course you're opening the door for deception to come in. And, and I've told them, when, when you say, no, 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 we're not telling people that grace gives them a license to sin, I'm saying your very message is telling it in other ways. And that's the mixture. God's true grace, Titus, the second chapter, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. God's true grace changes us from the inside out. Now, now here's, here's what's so important. I didn't call the message counterfeit grace in my book because there's a wonderful true message that they're preaching, but it's been preached with exaggeration. It's been preached with distortion. It's been preached with error added in. So a lot of people just get the true part and they'll say, my life has been changed by this message. I want to preserve that. I'm jealous for that. I don't want to take away any good thing anyone received, but when you mix anything with a little poison, it can be deadly, Sid. You know, one of the statements uh, that I hear quite often, and, and, and I believe we have to define this, uh, many say I'm under uh, the New Testament, not under the old. I'm not under the law anymore. What would you say if I walked up to you, Mike, and I said, I'm not under the law anymore? Uh, what would you say? I would say absolutely. Number one, you're not under the law as a system of justification. You don't have to keep this commandment, this commandment, this commandment to be justified. We've been, we've been pronounced justified through faith in Jesus and saying, God, save me from my sins. You're not under the law as a system of justification. You're not under the condemnation of the law that if you fail to keep the Sabbath one day, there's a death penalty or something like that. And you're not under the law as a tutor or a supervisor to bring you to the Messiah. This is all laid out in Scripture. In fact, I, I get into this in detail in, in my book as well. So the, the law is no longer leading us to the Messiah. We have found the Messiah in him. Now, under the new covenant, the law is written on our hearts. Now, under the new covenant, we have a higher standard. The law said don't commit adultery. Jesus now says to us, don't lust in your heart. The law said don't murder. Now Jesus, grace says to us, don't hate in your heart. So now we are supernaturally empowered to do what the law commanded us to do. We couldn't before. It was external. It was written on a tablet saying, do this, do that. Now through grace, it's written on our hearts. And that's why Hebrews warns us, don't tamper with it because this is so much higher, so much more precious. It cost Jesus his blood. Okay, okay, but if that's true, 
why don't, since the, 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 the law is written on our heart, why don't we just cut out our Old Testament and throw it away? Why, why should we even hang on to it? Ah, do you know that one hypergrace teacher, whom I quote in my book, went as far as saying, and, and I wrote to him and said, do you still stand by this? He said, 100%. He said, quote, the Bible Society, I don't know which Bible Society meant, made a terrible mistake when they put the Old Testament together with the New Testament. It has terribly confused believers. Said, I have chapters in my book talking about how the Old Testament is thrown out. And, and people say, no, 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 we can learn from it. We can learn from examples. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 to believers and says, look at how Israel sinned. Look at how they committed idolatry, sexual immorality, and don't do the same because these are warnings for us. Sid, the Bible of the early church was, quote, the Old Testament. That's the only Bible they had. Paul preached grace based on the Old Testament. Now people want to throw it out. That's an ancient heresy that goes back to an early church leader who went heretical called Marcion. And it goes all the way back to the second century. It's being revisited today. People are getting so caught up. in So the same spirit that was on this Marcion is on some of these hyper-grace teachers today. Or at least the tendency to go in that same direction. There, there's one very, very well-known TV preacher, author, and he has a, a series, a, a teaching series that contrasts the God of the New Testament, the, the God of love and mercy, with the wrathful God of the Old Testament. That is classic Marcion belief. So we, we need to recognize a serious root of error. Sid, I've read stuff. Look, you know I read the Hebrew like other people read the English. I, 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 listen, you provoke me to jealousy. Not only does he read the Hebrew, but he, he has memorized a lot of, um, a, a great deal of the Old Covenant in Hebrew. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm provoked that there's a whole lot more to memorize that I want to get in my heart. <laughs> it's, it's not that big a book when you really think about it. But, but Sid, I, I've read some quotes, and here's what happens. Preacher A says it, and then a hundred other people repeat it. I see verbatim, book after book, teaching after teaching. They all say the same thing because they think brother so-and-so researched it because he said the Hebrew says this and that. And it's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely false. I think, what Bible are they reading? And, and what grieves me is some of these people are fine people with a fine message that could help so many. But they feel as if to really preach grace, they have to go to this hyper extreme. Some of them say, if, 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 if it's not too good to be true, it's not grace. Well, then here's a logical question. If, if there's a hell, if there's future punishment, then it's not too good to be true. Some of them have gone completely off the deep end and say, that's right, everyone will ultimately be saved because, hey, it's grace. This is where it leads. And don't even some of them say the devil's going to end up being saved? <laughs> yeah, there's one, one fellow who's promoted, uh, he used to promote a healthy revival repentance message. Then he began to preach hyper grace. And the moment you try to interact, you are Ishmael. I am Isaac. You, you are under the law I, and, and the flesh. I'm in the spirit. And, and he, now he keeps going further and further and says, hey, why not? Why not Satan being redeemed? Why not these wicked spirits being redeemed? Is there anything outside of God's grace? Now, 99% of the guys would reject that, but that's where it goes when it becomes untethered from scriptural truth. Uh, you know, Mike, I am so excited to release your brand new book. We, we are the first. It's called Hyper Grace, subtitled Exposing the Dangers of the Modern Grace Message. Uh, it's 300 plus pages, uh, but this is, in my opinion, the defining book of 
for one of the greatest heresies that the church has had in modern times. I believe that everyone has got to get this book, read it. Mike names names. Mike quotes, exact quotes of many of the people you'll recognize from television. And I urge you to get this book. And then I have a special teaching CD by Mike called True Grace. And I want you to gather, get it from a scholar of scholars, what True Grace is. All available for a gift of $25. Call our order only line, 1-800-447-2697. You and I would not be here if there wasn't true biblical grace, but I find it so difficult to believe that some people are teaching some of the things we'll talk about today and that others are believing it. For instance, uh, some are saying, uh, has God already forgiven all of our future sins so we can do anything we want? Well, see, here's what they'd say. None of them would say you can do whatever you want. The, the problem, again, is human nature being what it is, people struggling, the flesh being what it is, temptation, the world, Satan. We know there's a lot in the New Testament that addresses purity of life and conduct and so on. If you're told your future sins have already been forgiven, and, and that leads to a few other things. I have a, a, several chapters in my book that just deal with this. And by the way, the book is written so anyone can pick it up, whether you've been saved six months whether you're a pastor or leader, anyone can pick it up, read it, follow it. I document every single quote, even something from the Internet, everything taken in context, nobody treated unfairly. I say a hearty amen to all the good points these folks are making and then say caution, caution, danger. So here's the thing. If you are told that all your future sins were forgiven the moment you got saved— God not only said, Sid, I forgive you. Mike, I forgive you. Mike, I forgive you for shooting heroin, for stealing money from your father, for your pride, for your rebellion, for your lust, for your sin, for everything else. I forgive you of everything you've ever done. I give you a clean slate. I pronounce you righteous, my child. Uh, Not only that, he also said, Mike, I have already pronounced you forgiven for every sin you'll ever commit for the rest of your life. Don't be sin conscience. Don't think about By the way, that's a very important phrase. I don't want to, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there was legalism. Today, there is hyper grace. They're both just as bad. Except the legalism, you may not lose your salvation. With the hyper grace, I think you could. Well, see, legalism drives a lot of people away from Jesus. I hate legalism. Legalism is externally imposed religion. Legalism is laws without love. It's standards without a savior. It's rules without a relationship. And it drives a lot of people away from God because they think God's just there with some stick. And, And see, Sid, some people have very sensitive consciences. They do one wrong thing. A mom yells at her kid during the day. A guy has a stray thought during the day, and they think, oh, no, 
God hates me. God's upset with me. Just like that church I grew up in, you know, if, if the men wore jewelry or a wedding ring, they were in the flesh. If I went to see a G-rated movie with my family, I was going to hell. So, so now they hear a message of grace and forgiveness, and you're accepted because of what Jesus did. It's not by your works. God loves you even on your worst day. And they hear these wonderful truths, and it liberates them. I'm free. But then it gets mixed with this error that says, Sid, the moment you got saved, God forgave past sins, present sins, and future sins. Rather than what Scripture says, Jesus paid for them all, and forgiveness is transacted when we come to God and confess and and recognize our sin or ask for mercy. So if I'm told, Mike, all your future sins are forgiven, don't have a sin consciousness. Okay, so now, God forbid, I go out and blow it. I, get, I start losing my temper all the time around my family, around my friends. And someone says, Mike, something's wrong. You're out of control. No, 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 man. You're putting condemnation on me. That's <laughs> sin consciousness. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. See, that's what is happening. And, and this now, is not- what, will it, what will it lead to if it isn't stopped? What will that lead to, in your opinion? Hardness of heart backsliding, and possibly ultimately denying Jesus and walking away from God. So that's the same thing that happened with the legalism 30, 40 years ago. It's the flip side. The devil couldn't succeed with the legalism, but now he's coming in the back door. Exactly. And, And see, here's what I'm jealous for. I'm jealous for the person who has a sensitive conscience. I'm jealous for the person who says, but Sid, the Bible tells me I'm to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself, and I can't do it. And so we, we want to bathe them in grace. We want to bathe them in favor. We want to bathe them in the understanding that, that we are carried by what Jesus has done. He's our strength. He's our power. And then here's what we need to recognize. Hypergrace teachers also say we are not supposed to confess our sins to God and ask for forgiveness because we've already been forgiven. Some even say it's a sin to confess sin to God and ask for forgiveness. You say, well, what about 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, and that was written to believers, right. not so, to non-believers. Across the board, I documented Sid in my book, quote after quote. They say, no, no, no. There were Gnostics. There were these people who held to a heretical belief that were part of John's congregations. And that letter was addressing the Gnostics who claimed to be without sin and and encouraging them to turn in faith and be saved. Number one, there was no such thing as Gnosticism in in a hardened form in that day. There were the beginnings of Gnostic beliefs, but nothing that you could call Gnosticism. Let's just say the beliefs were circulating. But what John makes absolutely clear is that the heretics had left. First John 2, they went out from among us. First John 4, we have overcome them. So the they is always the heretics on the outside. Every top John scholar in the world that I've read recognizes that the heretics are outside. John is talking to believers and saying, look, if we say we have no sin, like some of these Gnostics say, we deceive ourselves. And then here's what's really important. Anyone that can read Greek knows this. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. The Greek is ongoing present if we confess our sins in an ongoing way. Sid, the Greek is very precise. It's a precise, clear language. It's not saying if one time when we get saved, we confess our sins. It's saying this is a way of life. Now, here's why it's important. I blow it. I'm driving here. A car cuts me off. This didn't happen, hypothetically. A car cuts me off. I lean on my horn. I yell, you jerk, what are you doing? I say, Father, 
What did I, Lord, I'm so sorry. Wash me, cleanse me. That's not me. That's not who I am. I'm your child. I love and you. you. I want to serve. you get your peace back right, all right. of a sudden. But if I don't do that because I'm the righteousness of God in Christ and I can't even talk about that, now it allows hardness to come in. Now it allows justification of my sin to come in because, hey, God doesn't see it. Sid, it is, a, it is taught in hyper-grace circles that God doesn't see your sin ever. And Every day he looks at you, Sid, no matter what you're doing or how you're living, he's thrilled with you and is singing your praises. That's contrary to the entire New Testament. And you have to say, if we're never supposed to be conscious of sin, why does Paul bring it up in his letters all the time? Why does Jesus bring it up in his teaching? It's because sin is deadly. Sin is destructive. And God in his love and goodness and kindness convicts us, not condemns us. Condemnation is get away from me. You're guilty. Conviction is come near to me. You know what I'm thinking? Here we have Hollywood saying sin is okay. We have television saying sin is okay. We have our education system saying there's no absolutes. Uh, And and now we have a large segment of the church. God doesn't see your sin. Yeah. No matter what you do, God doesn't see it. And and it doesn't affect anything. That is, I hate to say this, but that is a brilliant strategy of the devil. It is. I mean, it's a a masterful strategy. Mike, why did you write the book? I was compelled to write the book, number one, because I love the grace of God and I hate to see something polluted. Number two, because I was watching life after life get picked off and destroyed. Number three, because pastors and leaders from around the world are saying, Mike, please write a book. Get this out. In fact, through you, Sid, we were able to bump up the publication date by five months to get this out. That's how urgent it is. God wants this. I, 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 I did what I had to do, but it was really God. I mean, I, I'm telling you. That you, if it's not you, you have friends and family that are going to get into this heresy. And Mike has quotes. He, he has names. Uh, you know, I was talking to uh, our mutual friend Steve Hill uh, about naming names. And he said, Sid, did you know in the New Testament when people were into heresy, their names were named right in the New Testament? And here's the thing. I want to help people. So I say Amen to the good things. Uh, Some of these people have gone off the deep end and and are not even in the Lord anymore. But those who are brothers and sisters, I I plan on being with them for eternity. I'm jealous for them, too. I'm saying, I have a corrective for you. I'm reaching out to you. This is such a great message. Some of them have a great revelation of grace, but they got so caught up with it, they forgot to stay tethered to the Word and start denying scriptural truths or rewriting things. And, and especially if you can read the Hebrew and Greek, you throw the teaching out in a split second. I've reached out to them so far without success, but I'm hoping that some will recognize the error that they're mixing with the truth and will come right back to Scripture. And the anger that I bump into when Ooh. I talk about, but look at this scripture, and they start calling me names using scripture. Yeah, one guy started calling me a jerk on my Facebook page, and I said, you know, I don't take comments like that. I didn't know if he was a believer or not. I said, I hope you really come to know God's grace and love. He writes back furious, how dare you say, I don't know God's grace and love? How dare, it gets really nasty with me. And I said to him, you know, actually, 
if you were really touched by God's grace and love, I would expect a different response. I have a whole chapter on name-calling, judgmentalism, divisiveness in the name of grace. Sid, I have never seen something nastier, more divisive in the body than the so-called message of grace that's going forth I, I, today. You know, we were talking about they say there's no need to confess sin, to repent, and the Holy Spirit doesn't even convict of sin anymore. What a setup by the devil. Give me a few ideas, Dr. Brown, on uh, what some of these teachers are saying. And of course, Sid, in my book, I document in detail exactly what's being said. I affirm the truth of the grace message that some of these men are teaching and preaching and then point out the error. Here's some of the errors. One is the idea that God has already pronounced forgiven all of our future sins. Not that Jesus paid for them. We all agree with that. But that we've already been pronounced forgiven in advance for all of our future sins. Therefore, you never confess your sin to God because God's already forgiven it. So so what would happen if I said, but you're supposed to repent when you sin to a hyper-grace teacher? What Uh, would they say? Sid, you're just under a legalistic way of thinking. You're into behavior modification and sin management. Repent just means I agree with God. I agree that I'm righteous. That's all repent means. Of course, it's not what repent means, and I detail that in the book with Scripture and with dictionaries. But that, that would be the response. Repent just means come into agreement with God, change your mind about how you're thinking, you're righteous. Now, we are saints. God calls us saints, and now we're called to live like saints. What hyper-grace people would say is, we have already been completely sanctified. We are already completely, totally, perfectly holy in God's sight. Every day, God is thrilled with us singing our praises. No matter what sin I commit, God doesn't see it because he's already said, I'll remember your sin no more. Therefore, the Holy Spirit will never convict me of sin because God doesn't see the sin and he's already pronounced and, it and forgiven. And a teaching like that is, a, in my opinion, a license to sin. A license to sin will result in hardness of heart. Hardness in heart, of heart will result in someone being demonized and Either, either going into something totally counterfeit and thinking, you know, being totally deceived. Well, that's, that's what someone demonized is, totally deceived. I'm concerned where it's headed. Is it true that some of them are saying there is no hell, there is no devil? I mean, how far are they yeah, going to so, go? So, yeah, some say, of course, there's a devil, but that the devil might ultimately be saved. Are there any limits to God's grace? Some are saying that if there is a hell, it's only temporary, that everybody will ultimately make it in. That's true grace. Some are saying this, I don't sin. You say, no, no, no. You just admitted to me that sometimes you'll be guilty of lust or sometimes you'll be guilty of anger. Or sometimes... No, 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 that's not me. My spirit is perfect. That's just my flesh sinning. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not really, you know, Sid, it but, reminds but me. I don't understand how anyone that knows the word can accept these things. Because what happens is you'll take a truth, all right? And then you'll take it to its logical extreme outside of the rest of scripture truth. If Jesus already died for my sins, if I'm already forgiven, if he paid the full price, if I'm not under grace, it's not a matter of works, it's not a matter of law and so on and so forth. Therefore, And what they do is they break away from a ton of other scripture. Often they break away from the context itself. You want to know how far it goes, Sid? You say, no, no, but Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive others. 
No, no, no. Jesus was teaching Jews under the old covenant. Oh, the ser- no. Sid, I, but the no sermon, one could believe that. The sermon, no one with half a brain could believe that, Mike. Said there are sincere people out there. I've dialogued with them. I've interacted with them. And they say the Sermon on the Mount was for Jews under the law. Everything Jesus taught right, well, up until he died on the cross was old covenant. The new covenant didn't start. So that they said they are robbing from us, from the church, the precious words of Jesus. John 14, Jesus told his disciples the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance what he said. Matthew 28, the Great Commission is is to make disciples by teaching them everything Jesus taught. John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. All these things about the words of Jesus, which the early church, they prized. They hung on every word. That's why the gospel authors spent years and years, decades, compiling, putting things together before they published this. And now we're being told it doesn't apply. So take up your cross. Follow Jesus. No, 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 no. That doesn't apply okay, to us anymore. Listen, if I was a dogmatic, uh, hyper-grace teacher, which, praise God, I'm not, I, and you extended an invitation for me to be, because Mike has his own radio show that's nationally syndicated, uh, and it, it's called The Line of Fire, uh, and, and I, I would want to be on your show. Have you approached them? I, I've approached a, a number of different teachers. Well, if they're so sure that they're they're right. Why wouldn't they want to be to help you? Yeah, well, uh, see, I've said, look, let's discuss this. I'm not a nasty person. I'm not mean-spirited. Look, you've seen me debate rabbis and others, and, and I'll give them a shot. Look, Sid, I, I constantly take invitations to go on secular radio, to go on hostile territory. If, if Hypergrace University and Hypergrace City and Hypergrace Church said, Mike, we'd like you to come on and debate our 10 top people. Tell me when, tell me where. I'll be in their heartbeat because we, we can't be afraid of the truth. So why, will they debate their issues or do they just want to expound on, on, the, on the error? Thus far, no. Now, some of them just are not debaters. They're, they're gentle kind of people, and they're like, look, man, I don't want to get in an argument. You have your view. Well, I, I bless you. What about the top people on TV? I can't understand. Well, some will just not respond to invitations for whatever, for whatever reason, even though we've got quite a nice platform with our radio show. But others, okay. fr- I, uh, Sid, uh, uh, I think they just don't like to be challenged. Okay. I will challenge top ones. I'll make my TV show available to you. If you will debate Dr. Brown on something that you're basing your entire reputation on. All right, let's get back to your book. Uh, the book is called Hyper Grace, Exposing the Dangers of the Modern Grace Message. Um, and, Mike, uh, you talk about a word that a lot of Christians don't understand, sanctification, sanctified. What does that really mean? Yeah, I have a whole chapter called Sanctified or Not. Sanctified simply means set apart to God as holy. That's all it means. Sanctified is set apart to God as holy. Here's what hypergrace teachers get right, and here's what they get wrong. Scripture plainly says we have already been sanctified. In other words, the moment we get saved, even when we've still got all kinds of baggage and junk. Look, I quit shooting heroin December 17th of 71, but I was not a perfectly saintly individual at that moment. All right. And, and I've been growing. Yeah, but in can't the Lord. they separate it and, and say that's the positional thing, but we're growing in. in... Ah, all right. So we would say there are three phases to sanctification. Yes. We've already been set apart to God as holy. We're already sanctified. We are a 
being sanctified. We are growing in grace and right. knowledge and conduct. And in the future, we'll be ultimately perfectly sanctified with the resurrection. They reject that. They say it is all in the past. In other words, they take what theologians call positional sanctification, that that's where we stand positionally in Jesus. We're seated in heavenly places positionally, but we're still walking here on the earth, right? We've already been declared holy, but we're being made holy. We're pursuing holiness. They say, no, 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 no. They reject sanctification as a process. They reject sanctification in an ongoing way. That's one of the biggest errors. If I have already been set apart as perfectly holy and God sees me as perfectly holy, therefore I don't sin or I'm not accountable for my sins or my sins are not part of who I really am because my spirit is perfect. That's just flesh doing these things. It's one of their fundamental errors. So I unpack it. Yes, there are verses that say we have already been sanctified, but then Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4 and says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So be holy. Guys, don't sleep around with someone else's wife. Control your body. Be holy. And if you despise this, you don't despise man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Paul prays for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that God would sanctify them wholly. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, having these promises, these wonderful promises from God that we've been declared as children and the temple of the Spirit. Now, he says, having these promises, let us perfect holiness. So because we've been set apart as holy, that's why we're called saints in the New Testament. God says, now live this out. It's a process. We grow. That's why we confess our sins. It's like getting our feet washed. When they're, when they're dirty. We've already been bathed from head to toe, but as we walk the roads of this world, our feet get dirty. Ongoing cleansing, and we grow, and then one day we'll be perfectly sanctified. Okay, that begs the question. Uh, is there anything we have to do to please God? Do we have to do works? Um, what, what do they say? What does the Bible say? I've got quotes from hypergrace teachers saying we must get rid of this God-pleasing mentality. Sid, literal quotes. If you are working to please God, you're going to have a lifetime of futile effort. Now, if they mean I have to pray eight hours today, I have to fast 28 days out of the month, I have to witness to four new people every day, or I'm not saved, or I'm not pleasing God. Okay, let's be delivered from that legalistic bondage. Let's be delivered from a mentality that I can only please God by trying harder. However, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, find out what pleases the Lord. He says we're always seeking to please the Lord. Sid, this is a relationship. One of the things that grieves me so much is things are taught in a non-relational way. I asked one hypergrace teacher, I said, if you sinned against your wife, you lost your temper with her, you left the house, you come back a few hours later, you haven't spoken a word. When you get home and you say, honey, I'm so sorry, uh, that, that was abusive and inappropriate. You're a wonderful wife and godly woman. What I did is ugly. Please forgive me. I said, would you do that? He said, of course. I said, well, wouldn't you do that if you sinned against God? He said, my wife is not God. It's a different, it's, it's completely different. No, Sid, that's just relationship. That's just when you really love the Lord so much and you realize you grieved him, your heart says, Father, I want to please you. I, I want I'm to honor sorry, you. Mike, we're out of time. I, I'm just curious, Mike. Do you feel like you get more out of the Word by reading in the original language than the translations? Well, yes and no. Uh, absolutely in terms of this is how it was written. So it, it, an expression, a play on words, the feel of it, the power of it, a, a precision of expression, 
that, that you can only get by reading the original. So absolutely, I'm working on a commentary on Job right now. I'm, I'm living in, in the Hebrew. I wrote a commentary on Jeremiah, lived in the Hebrew of that. So, of course, there are things you can only get by reading the original. But I say no in, in that God gave his word so it could be translated into different languages. And there's a certain power uh, in the word. I'll, I'll gladly pick up my Bible and read it in English and just drink in the power and the life of the word. So everyone should be encouraged. This is God's word. It's not like the Quran. If you can't study it in Arabic, it's not the Quran. No, God gave it in such a way that everyone could read and understand. So, so you should have confidence as you read your English Bibles, good translations. But, oh, digging into the original, that's why I spent all these years. Of course, it's, it's a delight. It's a wonder. And it also refutes a lot of error. It's just simple things. A lot of the hypergrace teaching, if, if people could read the Hebrew and Greek fluently, they never would have come up with it. But you know what? Man's heart, according to Jeremiah, is so deceitful uh, that if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Oh, no, no, no. But see, that doesn't apply to me anymore. I don't have any remnant of uh, this is what a hypergrace teacher would say. I have no remnant of a sinful nature. I have no remnant of the flesh. I am completely a new creation, not just positionally in Jesus, but in reality. Therefore, as some say, the moment you're saved, the battle with sin is decisively over, and spirituality is now effortless. What what world are they living in? (laughs) There's got to be some—okay, there's a reality and there's a deception. That's what I find throughout the hyper-grace message. And that's why I didn't call it counterfeit grace. There is some that's pure counterfeit, but some have a a truth, a wonderful truth. And they'll quote a lot of scripture about that truth, but then they mix it with the error, which which is deception, which leads to real serious deception, which I'm watching unfold every day, virtually getting the horror stories of what's happening constantly coming my way. So here's no, I want want to give you an example. A um, pastor hears the hyper grace message and decides it's okay for him to divorce his wife. Um, He remarries. He doesn't repent of any sin. Does he go to heaven? God God is his judge. But this much I know. If someone dies an unrepentant adulterer, it's, it's one thing, you know, someone's driving in their car and they think a wrong thought and then they get in an accident. No, they're not, they're not going to hell because they thought a wrong thought. I mean, it's just that's right. completely unscriptural. But if someone, this is what the word's very clear on, lives a persistent, unrepentant lifestyle, either they were never saved or they have rejected Jesus as Lord. I don't like to think about losing our salvation. I like to think about forfeiting it. You have the right the, to walk away from God. God will not force you to stay with him. I can turn my back on him, walk away. Second Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his, that's his side. Our side, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father. A hyper-grace person says, man, that's salvation by works. I said, no, no, that's salvation. <laughs> salvation really saves. And if I reject it, it saves me from sin. If I reject it, turn my back on God, deny, deny his lordship. How can I sin? divorce my wife with no biblical grounds, marry someone else. Now I'm in adultery in God's sight. Go on like that in an unrepentant way and say, Jesus is my Lord. He's not. 
He's no longer my Lord. So someone can cast off the Lordship of Jesus. This is totally different than a believer saying, Lord, I love you. I want to please you. I just struggle. I've, I got this gambling thing and I'm struggling. Lord, help me. God's compassion is so great, Sid. He, he forgives over and again. He reaches out. We fall on our face and he picks us up. He's loving. He's kind. He's compassionate. But when we harden our heart and think there are no consequences to my sin or, or God doesn't deal with me about sin anymore or I can do whatever I want and it doesn't affect my relationship with God, that's danger. And Sid, there are hypergrace teachers, I documented in my book, who say this, no matter what you do, it will have no effect on your relationship with God, or it will have no effect on your salvation. That is a dangerous deception. What would a hypergrace teacher, or, or better yet, how come hypergrace teachers do not deal with the day of the Lord, judgment, hell, heaven? How come? Well, it, it contradicts the feel of the message. In other words, if I am just saying God is love, God is good, God is kind, God is compassionate, and I leave out God is just, I leave out God is wrathful, I leave out God punishes sin, I leave out the rest of the message in my preaching and teaching to the church because, hey, that's not for us. Any, any words of warning from Jesus? No, no, somehow it doesn't apply to us. Any words of warning for Paul? No, no, that was for unbelievers in his congregation because God would not speak to us like that. If I'm going to do that now, obviously, how am I going to warn about the coming day of wrath? Paul thought it was important to tell believers, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, to tell believers do not live a certain way because the wrath of God is coming on those who do. It, it's like saying this. We have a safety zone here. There, we have a, a hurricane shelter in this building, and there's a massive hurricane coming. So stay in the building because if you go out there, you're going to die. It's a warning of love. But I hear almost no warning. The only warning I ever hear from hypergrace teachers is don't get out from our teaching on grace. Don't listen to the warnings. And, and Sid, you asked how someone could come up with the idea right. that spirituality is effortless. Here's the truth of it. When I come to know that God has forgiven me, not because of my good works, but because of what Jesus did, when I fellowship with him, when I enjoy him, it's just, it feels automatic. You just want to please God. You want to pray. You want to witness. But the fact is, that's not the whole story. Jesus says we have to take up our cross, deny ourselves daily. Paul talks about running a race and being disciplined, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 2, 3, endure hardship as a good soldier of Messiah Jesus. I have a whole book, a whole chapter in my Hyper Grace book called Is Spirituality Effortless, where I interview Jesus, I interview Paul, I interview Peter, and say, what do you make of this concept? And one after another after another says, you have to push, you have to strive. So working with the Lord in the Spirit we say no to the flesh. It is an ongoing battle set. Okay, what do you mean by the new Gnostics? First, what is Gnosticism? Uh, Gnosticism was a heresy. It, its seeds begin in New Testament times, but it doesn't become fully developed until after the time of the New Testament. Uh, there are different factions of Gnosticism found within both Jewish and Christian groups, but they basically believe this, that the material world itself was evil that the God of the Old Testament was evil. 
that they call them the Demiurge. He came forth from the one true God, the father of the Lord Jesus, who's good and love and compassionate. And he created the world because the world, the material realm itself is evil. The son of God came into this world in the body of Jesus, but then he left before the crucifixion because he's not going to be touched by the things of this world. And then Gnostics didn't put emphasis on on relationship, but revelation. (gasps) We've got the knowledge. That's why the word gnosis in Greek is, is the word for knowledge. That's what they were called. So I've got the revelation. I've received this deeper truth and I am pure spirit. I don't even sin because I'm not in the body anymore. And Sid, some of the hyper grace teaching today is going in the direction of Gnosticism. Undeniably, I'm talking about people who are in the Lord now, who are preaching a lot of good stuff. It is now being mixed with Gnostic error and even Gnostic heresy to the point that some are now completely departing from the faith. Okay, Mike, what concerns you the most about the hyper grace teaching? The, the thing that concerns me the most is they've taken a glorious, life-giving truth and mixed it with deadly error and distortion. It is a perverted grace message at times. It is a grace mixture. So here's the terrible danger. A lot of people hear the good part, and they're changed, Sid. I hear from them too. Mike, I'm delivered from legalism. I've never loved Jesus so much. I've never prayed so much. I've never lived a holier life. There's something wonderful, but because of the error that it's mixed with, as people keep drinking it in, it's unbalanced. It's unbiblical. What's going to happen is that little by little, people are going to start to die of the poison. And then others in order to justify error, because we don't deal with sin, that's sin consciousness, that's sin management, that's behavior modification, because God's already forgiven my future sins, because the Holy Spirit doesn't convict me of sins, because I don't confess my sin, because I'm not in the body, I'm a spirit, and so on, I don't sin. Because of that deception, people are going to have no accountability for what they do in the flesh, and ultimately, yes, people will walk away from Jesus in the name of grace. Question. How pervasive at this moment is this message with most of the hyper-grace teachers in Christianity today? How pervasive is this? Well, every hyper-grace teacher I identify as hyper-grace has a mixture. Some of them have great stuff and the mixture is minor. Some of them, it's about half and half. Some of them, it's mainly the error. But the hyper-grace message is spreading like wildfire through the body prominent TV teachers and preachers, prominent authors, folks in in, in different parts of the world espousing this. And it's almost like a cult-like following because many of the people who've been helped by it are really sensitive and really introspective. And they've really been helped. The moment you come with a criticism, it's like, don't touch my baby. This changed my life. And there's such a harsh reaction. Okay, we're out of time right now. Mike, You know, there are many people that are saying God is always in a good mood. What Bible are they reading? Yeah, and, and, you know, I have a whole chapter in my Hyper Grace book that asks that question, is God always in a good mood? So first, there are friends of mine, ministry colleagues, folks I love, I honor and respect, that, that use this phrase, God is always in a good mood. What they mean by it is he's not moody. It's not like, oh. Guy, uh, I crossed him today. He's not, he's not, stay away from dad. He's hung over. He got drunk last night. Oh, mom's not in a good mood. She's touchy. No, 
God's not like that. God's disposition towards us is always he wants to bless. He's always long-suffering. He's always kind-hearted. He's not fickle in his love. In that sense, they want people who think, oh, no, there's a thunderstorm. God's mad at me. Oh, no, he's an ogre today. He's nice tomorrow. Some people project images of their bad, drunken, earthly father back on God, and they want to deliver them from that and let them know, you want to know God's disposition? Look at Jesus. There's wonderful truth to it, but like so much of the hyper-grace message, it's part of the truth, and it leaves out other extremely important truths. So was God in a good mood in Genesis 6 when his heart was so grieved at human sin that he had to wipe out the earth? Was he laughing and high-fiving it with the angels when he wiped out every human being on the planet? Was Jesus, who is the image of the Father, in a good mood when he wept over Jerusalem because of the coming destruction? Will he be in a good mood when he comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God? Ephesians 4 tells us not to grieve the Spirit. Isaiah 63 talks about grieving the Spirit. Is God in a good mood when we grieve him? Hey, here's a question. If we, if we don't understand God's grace and are constantly under bondage and thinking we have to work harder to please God, is God in a good mood about that? Basilius Schlink, who was a godly Christian leader uh, in Nazi Germany, stood up against the Nazis and, and was one of the greatest lovers of Israel in modern times in the church. She said, anyone who loves as much as God does must suffer, must feel pain. How can you be a loving father? and see the pain and the suffering of the human race, and not be hurt, not be grieved over it. So on the one hand, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. In, in his presence is joy, and that joy is our strength. There's rejoicing every time a sinner repents. So on the one hand, in God's presence, it must be the most exquisite joy imaginable. At the same time, God is multidimensional. Throughout the scriptures, he speaks of grieving, of his heart being in pain. Jesus is a man acquainted with grief and pain and carried the burden of human sickness and sin. So it's a distorted message as if, no matter what happens, here, a beloved pastor gets seduced by sin and and commits adultery and brings terrible reproach to the name of the Lord and believers backslide over this because they're so shattered by what the man of God did that they look to. They lose faith in Jesus. Is God in a good mood over like, ha ha, check that out. He just defiled the name of Jesus and destroyed the church and hurt my reputation before the whole world. I'm in a good mood. There's something very superficial the way it's presented that concerns me. Is he loving and kind and merciful? And is he good all the time, all the time good? Yes. Is he always in a good mood? That's a distorted statement. The truth of his disposition towards us, yes. The distorted error, okay. Sid, we got to expose it. That begs a question. I have had people on my show, and I might add, I agree with them, that have shown that when the United States goes against Israel, does something pro-homosexual, does something pro-murdering the babies uh, in the womb, uh, that there are warning judgments that occur. Uh, Do you think they're just coincidences, or do you believe that God could do such a thing? of, Of course he can. Of course, I can't speak for every individual instance. God is not in a good mood. Over, over 55 million babies that have been killed in the womb in America. And judgment is the love of God. 
Judgment is a wake-up call. How many times in our own lives has divine chastisement been a godsend because we were making a mistake or we were getting proud or we were deviating from our calling? And God, in his love, brought that in. First Peter 4, judgment begins with the house of God. Hebrews 12, God disciplines every son he receives. Of course there is. And in the New Testament, we have acts of divine judgment. Jesus warning about judgment on Jerusalem. Acts 12, Herod smitten down by the angel of the Lord for sin. Uh, Revelation 2, Jesus saying to Thyatira, if you don't repent, I'm going to bring these judgments on you and your children. It's the love of God calling us to repent, and hypergrace teachers have to throw those verses out too. Okay, I want you to explain true biblical grace. What, what a subject, Sid. Here, here's where it starts. While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. We sinned, he died. We were guilty, he was punished. We rejected God, he reached out to us. We deserved eternal punishment, he accepts us as sons and daughters. Sid, I start my book with a chapter called Why I Love the Message of Grace. I end my book with a chapter on the finished work of the cross. Think of it. All the sins we ever committed, if, if we wrote them on a piece of paper, if we could remember every one, every thought, every deed, each of us individually would fill a stadium with the pieces of paper, right? Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, pays for every sin every one of us has ever committed. And the day that we put our trust in him and say, God, forgive me, God, wash me, at that moment, God forgets what we've done. At that moment, he says, you are my son and my daughter. Not you are in the apprentice school to become a son or daughter. Not after five years of hard work, you enter. No, at that moment, God says to Sidroth, you are my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. At that moment, at that moment, he declares you righteous. At that moment, he declares you clean. At that moment, he calls you saint. Saint Sid. At that moment, and now his grace comes into our heart. It's not just something that happened. It's ongoing. Grace is not only unmerited favor. Grace is not only God's riches at Christ's expense. God's grace is his ongoing favor and help on our behalf. So here's what happens. God now by his spirit comes to live inside of you and he puts desires to please him inside of you and, and, he, and he puts a sensitivity to sin inside of you. So now it becomes your nature to do the will of God. It becomes your nature to please God. And here's the thing, John 13, Jesus is with his disciples. He's gonna wash their feet. Servants work, he's the master, the Lord's gonna wash their feet. Peter says, you're never gonna wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. So Peter, being zealous, says, then I want a bath, everything, <laughs> head, toe. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The one who's been bathed doesn't need to go get bathed again. Just have his feet washed. Why? Because in the ancient world, you didn't have showers and, and, and bathtubs in your house. You didn't have running water in your house. So if you were going to bathe, you either went to the river or to the public bathhouse. You'd bathe there, and then you walk home. Well, not all the roads were paved. Many places, no pavement at all. By the time you get home, your feet are dirty. Oh, no, my feet are dry. I got to go back to the bathhouse. Oh, man, I got to go back to the altar, that church where I got saved. Oh, man, I got to get saved again. No, 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 no. You are saved. 
You're set apart as holy. You're God's child. Unless you willfully reject him and push him away, you're his child. You're his child on a bad day and on a good day. You're his child when you're struggling. You're his child when, when you're overcoming. It's only if I blatantly turn my back on God, walk away from him and deny him or refuse to repent of sin. That's the issue. So what happens as a believer, 1 John 1, 7, what does it say? If we, we walk with him, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's ongoing in the Greek. Hang on. It says, if I walk in the light, where's their sin? Well, we're still not perfect. We hate sin. We, we, we work against sin with the Spirit. We renounce it. We never justify it. We never take it lightly. But we're not perfect. As I walk in the light, that means when I recognize it, I ask forgiveness. That means when I recognize it, I turn from it. That means when I recognize it, I don't justify it. As I walk in the light, my feet are getting clean all the time. I don't need to go back and get saved again. I don't need to go back to the bathhouse. I just need to get my feet washed, and that happens on a daily basis. very quickly, I believe there are many listening that need to repent turn from their sins and turn to this marvelous gift from God called grace for the power to overcome. Would you pray for them right now? Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, in the name of Yeshua, for a supernatural revelation of grace, that people would be delivered from legalistic striving, that people would be delivered from fighting sin and the power of the flesh, that people would be delivered from a wrong view of you, Father, as if you're hateful and vengeful and out to get them. May there be such a revelation of forgiven, clean, righteous through the blood, that they throw off the shackles of sin, that they throw off the shackles of deception. Lord, for those who've been deceived by a hyper-grace message and are playing with sin, I pray that holy conviction, loving conviction would flood their hearts, that they'd renounce that sin and turn to you and be cleansed afresh to serve you in wholeness. Father, may grace flood the life of every listener right now in Yeshua's name. And may you get this defining book called Hyper Grace, Exposing the Dangers of the Modern Grace Message, because this book you will need for yourself and family members and friends. We're the only ones that that have it right now. It'll be in the bookstore shortly, available for a gift of $25 and a bonus of Mike speaking on pure, true grace on a CD. The Lord is blessing you right now. The Lord, he's keeping you right now. The Lord, he's smiling upon you right now. The Lord, he's gifting you right now. The Lord is surrounding you with his grace, his favor right now. The Lord is giving you his shalom, his completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body right now. In the name that is above cancer, pain, diabetes, every disease, Yeshua HaMashiach Tzikinu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness. Vi 
To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.